Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you are not alone when you do. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And Trevor, yep. the other day, mm-hmm. I poured myself a tall glass of water, downed it in a single go, and then after I went, and then I just stared at my reflection in the glass. Why? Because that is exactly what my mother did growing up, and I, I hated it. I was like, why can't you sip water? Such big gulps. And then there was me in my kitchen, my mother provinces away, and I was like, well, here we are. And you know what? She was right. It feels more satisfying that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's when you realize I'm turning into my parents. Have you, have you noticed it? Oh, yeah. There's been many times where I've said to my kids, I've literally said to them, you know what? When you have your own house, you can do whatever you want. And right when it comes out of my mouth, I was like, oh, no. I, just, I, I, try, I literally try and grab the words and bring them back in. But no, that's all I heard growing up over and over again. In some ways, becoming our parents seems inevitable. I'm going to head to Sherway Gardens Mall in Toronto to find out what traits people have inherited, whether they like it or not. So the question is, what is something annoying that your parents used to do or say that you find yourself doing or saying? I'm a dad now, so I, my son, I'm like, I go up to my son and I'm like, hey, give me a kiss. My son would always run away because in my sense, when my dad would give me a kiss, I'm like, I'm not kissing you, go away. <laughs> my son does the same exact thing. The circle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's, history, it's, yeah, history yeah. repeats itself again yeah. all over. When I said I wanted to talk to you about becoming your parents, you said you're already there. <laughs> yes, that's right. How? How have you become your parents? Thoughts about money and savings and working and yeah. retirement. Placing my children's needs in the forefront of every and anything that I do and impacting and affecting my own self and self-care. Okay. Now that I'm older, I realize... That's why my mom was tired. That's why she couldn't do certain things. And that's happening to me right now. Okay. So that's why I'm doing self-care right now. What is a way that you see yourself becoming like your mother? And I know she is standing right beside you. <laughs> Maybe her work ethic. Yeah. Because she's very focused on her work and she like used to love to study when she was younger with like in university. So maybe I would, I think I'd become like that. Uh, with my mother? Oh, very uh, nervous, uptight person. You know, blows up fast, but calms down fast too. <laughs> and that's that's who you are. Yeah, <laughs> hyper. Well, maybe that's the right word, hyper. Yeah, very hyper. Um, so when I was a kid, we had one bathroom, and my mom had this shower curtain in our bathroom. And every time we showered, she said, "Close the curtain." And if we didn't close the curtain, she would take the curtain down and you'd find it outside the bathroom the next morning. So when I bought my first place, guess what I did? I told them, take the shower curtain out of the house and put some glass doors in. So I don't have shower curtains in my house, so I never have to worry about my mom's voice to close the shower curtain. (laughs) We're not doing the shower curtain thing. So 
I love that. <laughs> he really said, I will never become her because I will remove the shower curtain first. I love it. I feel like it sneaks up on you, though. Like, when you end up saying or doing something like your parents, you're just all of a sudden, you're like, what, what just happened? But maybe you might love it. There's definitely things about my parents that I would be so lucky to have passed down. Mm -hmm. Trying to embrace your family legacies or distance yourself from them can impact everything from your bathroom design choices to the ways you raise your kids. And today on Now or Never, we are untangling it all. I think my dad's legacy is imperfectness. When I get to hear about how he kind of fumbled through life for a while and what was really like when he went through his divorce, there is such value in understanding that, that, that he was imperfect, no one is. Um, and that actually makes me feel better about myself. I feel like I'm making up for something in some way and like remembering like all that he went through, all that my other grandparents went through, just wanna make them proud. I stood at the edge of Pockwalk Lake and saw the lake for the first time in person. I got to bring a few people from the community with us, also people that have never been through those gates. And we were looking at this huge lake, right? Like thinking that our ancestors would have been up here. That's where our ancestors would have been baptized. That's where all of our faith practice would have been. And it was a profound moment. This is Now or Never. Family Legacies. You sound just like your mom. <laughs> no! <laughs> I'm just kidding. Mom, I love you. <laughs>
yeah, so that freaked me out a bit. It, it, would, it made me realize very quickly that there's a distinct possibility that I wasn't going to be around to see Liam graduate from college. That was back in 2023, and fearing for his future wasn't the only thing that made Shawnee want to change his life. His unhealthy habits have deep roots in his family's past. My father was hundreds of pounds overweight, and my mother was anorexic. So they had the exact opposite problem. And growing up in a household with two parents that were obsessed with food in different ways um, was interesting. We weren't a healthy family. We ate whatever we wanted, fast food and McDonald's, and, and we didn't really see doctors. I mean, this was the 80s and 90s, so the idea of anything preventative was not a thing. It was just, you know, if you broke your leg or you're sick, you go to the hospital. But if you had a problem, if you were depressed, smoke a joint and, you know, drink a beer. And, and that was kind of the way we lived. My grandmother, I think, was really influential, for better or worse. I mean, so she was a Holocaust survivor, and her experience with food and health was quite profound. She spent a lot of time in her teenage years in Auschwitz, and she talked about it quite a bit. Everything from hiding in toilets to not knowing when your next meal was, it was horrific. And she constantly made sure that I was always eating and it didn't matter what I was eating as well like it, it was you have to eat this is important you know you need to survive and I think her feeding me was was something that gave her a lot of joy and it was super important to her uh, I, I had a great relationship with my mother but my mother wasn't well she kind of suffered well she did suffer from anorexia most of her life one of the last conversations I remember having with her we were going through a drive through I think it was Tim Hortons, and she was absolutely obsessed with coffee. She probably drank, you know, four or five liters of coffee a day. It kept her going. Like, she wouldn't eat, but she liked coffee, and she loved putting a ton of sugar in the coffee. And we're at this drive through and, and she got a large coffee and, like, five sweet and lows or sugars. And she actually made me drive back around because she needed more sugar to put in the coffee. And I was like, are you serious? And... She looked at me and said, Shawnee, like, I'm 67. I'm not going to change now. And I think that was one of the last conversations we had. About a week or two later, she had passed. And it, it just got me thinking about, you know, her habits and, and, and how unhealthy she was. Um, I loved her to death, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact that she was probably one of the most unhealthy people that I had met in my life. So, yeah, I think that was probably a trigger for me deciding eventually that I needed to get healthy myself. And, and you know, being in your mid-40s, it, 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 it's tough. You, you kind of reach a point where you think, wow, I'm not invincible. But I knew that willpower alone wouldn't get me there because I tried to quit smoking so many times. I actually tried to be healthy throughout my life and I could never get anything to stick. I needed some type of plan. I needed like a protocol. And that's when I came across Brian Johnson. This is how you don't die. Brian Johnson. The man who spends $2 million a year to slow down his age. He's managed to reverse his biological age already. To an 18-year-old. Projected to live to 200. The only objective we have is don't die. I've opted into an algorithm that takes better care of me. I liked his health plan, and I'll tell you why. Because it, it, it was predicated on one important principle, and that was 
self-destructive behavior was kind of insane. And thinking about my mother and why she did what she did, it made a lot of sense to me. So I attempted to put together my own protocol. So I quit smoking. That was the first thing I had to do. So I put that money towards a gym membership and a trainer at least two to three times a week. I started taking a ton of supplements, probably 20 or 30 a day, walking barefoot in the winter, um, cold plunges, going from a cold plunge to a hot sauna and then vice versa, um, extreme stretching, yoga, walking 10,000 steps a day, minimum meditation, breath work. I started measuring my calories to a point that wouldn't necessarily be healthy for everybody. I measure everything that goes into my body. I measure how much I walk, how much I exercise. Everything is calculated and I have the math and that felt really empowering. And when I started losing weight and feeling better, yeah, it, it just kind of compounded and I wanted to do more and get healthier and healthier and healthier. My partner, Trisha, literally, she looked at what I was doing and was like, what, what is this? You're crazy. I don't know, to me, it, it felt like it was in control because this information was kind of fun to play with. So, so he'll know right now. So the second I'll pull out his little leash. Smudgy, run runs? Who's going run runs? You wanna go run runs? Let's go, Smudgy. One of the first things that I started doing, and I had no experience doing this at all, was running. Didn't want to do it alone, so I took my dog, and I ran two or three K, I almost died, and I just stuck with it. See, this is the issue. Smudgy will sometimes push me to zone three and four. I kind of want to put a heart monitor on him and see what he's doing. Yeah, it's fun when Smudgy sets the pace. In many ways, he helped me with kind of the initial exercise plan. I still run. I still love running. I still run constantly, and I still run with Smudgy. There's nothing better, I think, than, than accomplishing a 5K or a 10K, knowing that that's going to be the start to your day. Runnies, quick one, quick one, quick one. Looking back, I probably got a bit carried away. Going down the road of being ultra healthy can also, in a sense, be extreme. You can take it too far, and then it becomes an obsession. And, and I think that's what my mother was struggling with. So I found a healthy balance. I mean, I don't take all these supplements anymore. My diet's a bit looser. I still log everything. But overall, I think what I've learned is if, if you get off track or you have a donut or you're just not really feeling it that day, that's okay. And, and I think that resiliency, the ability to kind of get back on track is what I've learned. So yeah, I would say at this point in my life, it's a much more tame version of, of where I was at at the peak. This idea of longevity and, and the idea that you can live a healthy life when you're 60, 70, 80 and, and not necessarily be sick during those years is very fascinating. Like I, I you know, I want to shoot hoops with Liam, my son, when I'm, you know, 80 years old. I have an 11 and 12 year old and it is virtually impossible to get them to eat healthy. You can be an inspiration for them and try to kind of guide them in the right direction. And, you know, when they get older, they'll hopefully follow the same habits because they've seen that example.
You know, I think about that a lot. Whenever I am struggling and just want to lean on some courage, I think to myself, like, what do I want to do that I can say to someone down the line from me that there is evidence <laughs> that in my ancestry somebody dared? And uh, yeah, it's heavy, heavy on my mind. It really is. I think I think a lot of people have these thoughts, especially as they get older. I know one of my best friends is, is, is grappling with this idea of legacy right now as well. Because he's trying to capture his dad's memories as they start to fade before his very eyes. Because Doug Darling's dad has Alzheimer's. In the last five, six years, he had started showing and kind of joking about some indications that that might happen. We also know it's in the family. His brother, my uncle, died um, around then as well. So we knew it was coming. So there was an immediacy for sure because we wanted to get it before it was too late. Which was actually in a weird way like kind of good because then it, it actually, you know, we might not have done it if we thought we had all the time in the world. So ever since his dad started showing signs of dementia, Doug's been recording as many of his dad's stories as he can about his childhood, first jobs, how he met Doug's mom, and the million other stories we always think we're going to have more time to learn about our parents. So hi, Dad. Well, hi, Doug. How are you? Compared with? That's a good question. Can you tell me, first of all, where where were you born? I was born in Toronto, July the 18th, 1938. What is your kind of earliest memory of way back then? Well, there was a fire in our house. Nobody was injured or anything like that. But going in the next day, all I could smell was smoke. And as a result, even to this day, I can't eat any smoked meats. It's one thing to be able to hear the stories about what someone did versus to hear from them what they did. Some of it might not seem important to other people, but it's super important to me and just knowing um, how his life evolved. So I just basically did these like long form interviews um, and, um, and now have them saved. Were you a, were you a troublesome kid at all? Uh, I had my moments. <laughs> I had my moments. So I think so many of us don't sit down with our parents and really kind of get to know who they are and who they were. Yeah. Like I, I had that moment with my dad. We are driving to the dump and we just started, he started telling me about his time in Churchill, Manitoba. And I had no idea he even lived in Churchill, Manitoba. He started telling me all these things. And so it was just lovely to learn about my dad. And I think you taking it to the next level and recording it and just, and just getting to know your dad. Like, what did that yeah. mean to just get to know your dad more? Well, one of the things that I think we look at a lot of people and we really we really hone in on success stories. When I get to hear about how he kind of fumbled through life for a while or that how he didn't know what he was going to do and when he what was really like when he went through his divorce rather than him just kind of like you know going over it very quickly like hearing it in detail and what was going through his mind and what that was like um i think that um there is such value in understanding that 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 he was imperfect no one is um and that actually makes me feel better about myself because yeah. you can look at you can put these people on pedestals and i still do put my dad on a pedestal there's a picture in this house of him shaking hands with the queen like i don't think i'll ever make that level of importance he's done a lot uh for himself but i sometimes connect to the human side of him and uh beyond the highlight reel and who he really was so 
I will remember him in a different way than my kids will remember him, than my mom will remember him, or that anyone who wants to watch this will remember them and what they pull from that. Yeah. Weirdly enough, as we're recording this, I um, just got the call yesterday that his um, his health is declining. So he's still alive, but probably not for much longer. Uh, he's been he's been non-responsive for almost a year. So uh, we say the it's it's mourning the loss of someone who's still here. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know whether to say present or past tense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, you know, maybe this is a little too real, but in my mind, we've we've lost him already. He would be the first one to say, like, if I'm ever like this, you know, you know what to do. Okay, guys, what do you guys remember about Grandpa Bob? Uh, not a lot. Not a lot. You haven't seen him in a while, right? You remember? He likes jokes. He likes jokes, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Alice? Lately, Doug's been sitting down with his daughters, Rose and Alice, to show them videos of their grandfather before dementia started to take hold. Well, we got some footage of him. Looks a lot different here, hey? Yeah. Luckily, ah. we took this before his Alzheimer's kicked in. Luckily, we took it before. That's right. Yeah. Do you miss your grandpa? <laughs> yeah. I know. My grandfather was a war hero uh, in World War II. He died a month before I was born. And I've read some stories about what he had done in Italy and, and, and you know, fighting the Nazis. And, uh, and I would have loved to hear that story. So if there's, maybe it's not all war stories, but like, you know, there, I think there's something to be said that my daughters, when they're probably maybe 10 years from now, really maybe wanting to know about my mom and my dad, they now have that. And my sister has it. My brother has it. Anyone who wants to have it, has it. Why did you run away to Ottawa? (laughs) What was it? I don't know the whole, like something like big enough that you were going to leave your parents. Like, what was it that? It was very, very stupid. I knew I was going to fail my year and because uh, I just wasn't working and all this. I was in a, my mind was all screwed up. I ended up working as a bartender at the Ottawa Hunt Golf Club. Dad actually had somebody trying to find me up there. Then I ended up coming back to Toronto. Mom opened the door and I said, can I come home? And that was that. I mean, it was it was done, you know. Have they never yelled at you or anything? Nope. It, it, it changed me a lot. It made me really appreciate what I had. What's it like after you said your dad's been, like, non-communicative for over a year now? Mm-hmm. What's you it like that? sitting here looking at your dad? You know, it's funny. It, it's, it doesn't feel as foreign as maybe you would think it should. Yeah. This is the dad I remember. And then yet, when we heard that he was sliding yesterday and we or two days ago and we we go there, still all the emotions, you know, kinda kick in. You tired? Okay. You want me to leave you alone for a bit? Okay. <laughs> Alright. If like some miracle happened and you got that like one moment, like that notebook moment where there's like a moment of clarity for like five minutes with your dad what would what would you want him to know i'd want him to know that he can rest knowing that everything is good uh with his family with his legacy um i'd want him to know that i'm proud and uh i'm really lucky to have been his kid um 
I know not everyone gets to say that. And so, um, you know, you grow up as a teenager. I, I, now with kids of my own who I sound like my parents and the respect that I don't get and that one day you'll understand. Man, do I understand now. And, you know, when I really don't take for granted the things that he set me up for, the values that he gave me. And I'd love to be able to tell him that. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a piece of dad and me. There's a piece of dad in my brother and in my sister. And they're all different pieces. Um, and as long as we keep those pieces and hand those pieces off, then his legacy is never gone. And I'm extremely proud of how well your sister does. And I'm ex- exceedingly impressed with how you're doing and how your brother's doing. And uh, we're just absolutely thrilled in what you guys have become. You're all good to go. We'll see you tomorrow, okay? Bye, Dad. Bye, Mom. You know, Evie, in the 25 years that I've known Doug, uh, I only met his dad a handful of times, and so it was really nice to get to get to be introduced to his dad through some of these videos. And the best part is, is he's wanting to do this for his mom, his aunt, his cousins, and, and anyone else who, who may want to start sharing their legacy with people as well. The climate is changing, so are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Ife Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today we're peeling back the layers of our family trees to find out the legacies that they leave behind. Or in the case of our next story, the legacy they want to reclaim. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Long time no see. I'm doing an interview right now for the radio. <laughs> yeah, so they wanted to see the family property. So I was just telling them where the mill was and... Yeah. Okay. What are you doing? Are you working up here today? Yeah, I'm just, I just had a for some stuff off. I'm just getting ready to leave. Yeah, okay. Curtis Wiley has just started giving us a tour of Upper Hammonds Plains, Nova Scotia. And already, he's run into someone he knows. His uncle. Good to see you. The truck looks great. Trying my best. Yeah. And there's your machine. I know your machine was not working the best, but yeah, it's good now. It's working, but it's not way it should be. Yeah. How was that meeting last Saturday? It was good. In Upper Hammonds Plains, a small town nestled in the forests about 40 minute drive from Halifax, it seems like almost everyone here is related somehow. Upper Hammonds Plains is, is one example of like true community where, you know, legacy families have lived shoulder to shoulder for hundreds of years. And in Black communities, I think everyone ends up being related somehow. 
we'll head up the hill. Um, so the community has like the up the hill, down the street. There's like like colloquial names for like the different little spots. Um, so my family lives out the road, which is this way. Which is the every place we pass. Um, Curtis has a story. So I don't know if, if should we start. There? Curtis takes us past the basketball courts. Every year there's a parade and all the kids are there and they're playing basketball and I have fond memories. We drive of past the church he used to attend with his grandparents. He even stops the car to show us inside the local community center. This brick wall is the original wall from the one room schoolhouse. Here, this wall. So this, the room that's behind here, because there was a one room, like a segregated school that was built by the community. So this, we built the community center around it. Upper Hammonds Plains is one of the most historically significant black communities in Nova Scotia. But lately, that legacy has come under threat. So Curtis, whose family roots go back centuries, is doing everything that he can to make sure it's still around for the next generation. My family dates back to the original establishment of Upper Hammonds Plains, which had been 1815. So my great-great-great-grandfather came to Upper Hammonds Plains as a, um, essentially as a free black man, um, along with refugees from the War of 1812. They hoped to have autonomy. They hoped to flourish. Um, you know, they came here. Many of the black refugees came with a promise, right, of, of a better life, of land, of resources, because many of them were promised those things in exchange for fighting in the war. And so that was my family's legacy for the most part was cooper shops and sawmills, which operated for, you know, for over 200 years, um, and the Wiley property is still there. My dad and his brother still meet there on Sundays um, and still drive heavy machinery, and they're still clearing the land and talk, you know, doing the, the guy thing up there. There's just one problem. Even though generations of families built homes and schools and small businesses here, they never actually got deeds to the land like the physical piece of paper that proved they own the land. Today, less than 40% of the land in Upper Hammonds Plains is owned by African Nova Scotians. And that number, it's getting smaller every day, as developers have started eyeing up this land for housing and commercial development as Halifax's housing market continues to boom. I would say it happened about five years ago. People were getting um, solicited um, privately to sell property. And we started to see the first, I think, apartment building, maybe two. So two years ago, Curtis decided to do something about it. He's the driving force behind the Upper Hammond Plains Community Land Trust, which is dedicated to buying back some of this land, to providing affordable housing for the community and preserve its rich African Nova Scotian history. Upper Hammond Plains is a community that's rich, uh, rich in history. It's a well-connected community, a faithful community, a resilient community, and one that is, you know, coming together to resist or try to come through some of the current challenges that we're facing, which is not unlike many of the challenges that the community has faced, you know, in the past by our ancestors and overcome. Upper Hammonds Plains is one of many African Nova Scotian communities, one of, you know, over 50. And so our stories are similar in the fact that we were kind of put in these remote, desolate areas, basically to, you know, struggle. Um, and so 
you know, but we flourished and we built the first segregated school because the black children couldn't go to the white schools in the lower Hammonds Plains. We built the first all black volunteer fire department um, in Canada. So it was like those types of founding the things that we we just had to do it. The, our ancestors had to do these things for ourselves. And we see that kind of thing happening now in a different form. And the first plot of land that Curtis and his group have set their sights on is Pockwalk Lake, a pristine lake surrounded by forests that hasn't been accessible to residents since the 1970s, when the city of Halifax built a water treatment plant there. That used to be like where people fished in the community, where we accessed the water, where people were baptized, um, you know, all of those things. And so that was taken from us. And that water that flowed through our backyards, we didn't get access to for 25 years. And so we had to go to court, right? The community took this to court and won in 1999. And we finally got access to that water. And all of these feelings about, there's a lot of deep, the deeper feelings, land is not a commodity like how it is treated for other people as it is in our community. It is quite literally sacred. The land trust made a formal application to purchase five parcels of land around Pockwalk Lake back in June. And now they're still waiting for the final decision. So for our last stop on the tour today, Curtis takes us to the locked metal gates outside Pockwalk Lake to share his hopes of what this space could mean for the future generations in his community. These gates have been here since I was a kid. I've never been through them until last summer. So we went through those gates. I stood at the edge of Pockwalk Lake and saw the lake for the first time in person um, at the age of 33. And we were looking at this huge lake, right? Like thinking that our ancestors would have been up here, you know, and our the sawmills would have been operating on that water. And that's where our ancestors would have been baptized. That's where all of our faith practice would have been. Um, and, you know, there are stories about, like, how the men in the community would go into the woods for days, right, and, and be taking lumber back for, with ox, like, and stuff back in the day. And just, you know, the water hasn't been touched for 40 years. It's crystal clear, right? Um, and you can see, like, it's just, it's, it was profound. And it's very quiet. And it was a profound moment. Yeah. If the land deal does go through, Curtis has big plans to turn this into a recreational space with public parks, campgrounds, and beaches, as well as multi-generational housing that's accessible and affordable. But Curtis's vision doesn't end there. You picture a community that has, I think, a full circle. Like, it's a fully sustainable. Um, right now, we have to go outside of our community for mostly everything. And so, you know, we want to be designing and constructing really innovative projects. Like, we're going to be starting, like, a solar project. We want to have, a, I guess, a technically, uh, technologically advanced community. I always tell people that, I always say, we want to be like Wakanda. <laughs> I think he's calling himself the Black Panther. <laughs> Pockwalk Lake Forever. Doesn't have the same ring as Wakanda Forever, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> 
on a Winnipeg stage at the Festival de Voyageur, Métis identical twin brothers Luke and Aiden Wrigley are tearing it up on fiddles. This performance is a family affair. Proud mom, grandparents, and aunties are clapping along with the crowd, and Dad Rob is with them on stage, rocking out on his guitar. You guys even remember a time in your life when we weren't playing the festival? Probably not. (laughs) At just 19, the twins are veterans of this festival. They first played the stage when the boys were seven after starting fiddle lessons at just three years old at the insistence of their maternal grandmother. Hi, my name is Jacqueline LeClaire, and I'm Luke and Aiden Wrigley's grandma. First, we started by jigging, and then they knew all the steps that I knew, and they were getting better than me. So now I thought, well, okay, what, what else can we do? Our grandma, like, the best way she wanted us to do this one was a jigging or fiddling, and we chose fiddling instead. <laughs> It's really important, I think, that we keep practicing this and then it gets passed down. I find like this is not too often you see Métis fiddle players anymore. I know it was a really, it was a really big, uh, like in our grandma's hometown of Saint-Laurent, but they're slowly passing away. So I think it's important that, you know, we keep it going. And the boys have kept it going, along with their dad recording music and traveling the country together as a band. I did not plan on raising bandmates, uh, but I'm really happy I did. It's I've been in so many bands in my life, and the, hands down, like the best. This is the best band I've been part of. We've had so much exciting opportunities and um, spent so much time together. Not only on the road, but rehearsing and. Well, they're they're getting older now, so I don't see them very much around the house. But <laughs> but um, we've been pretty close, I think, and have I believe a special bond that you know music has given us. Getting them to to practice with me was was not always easy, but I would totally bribe them with like Slurpees or Dairy Queen or just to just to play for couple minutes just two minutes but then once they had the instruments in their hand like it always turned into more than two minutes and we just start developing a repertoire and it kind of just happened really naturally they were very little their fiddles were very tiny (laughs) but they always drew a, a crowd right from the beginning I think I was about, I, I want to say 12, but I really like don't know. When I transitioned to a full-size uh, fiddle, my dad had always had my great-grandma's fiddle laying around in the basement, and one day I just took it upon myself to take it out of the case and just play it, and it was in pretty rough shape. Like It took forever to tune, and it's still, we, we have fixed it up a little bit, but it's uh you know it's kind of neat to see like this thing has been in our family for like over 100 years it's worn out but it sounds i love the sound of it it's i have yet to hear us fill a sound quite similar while we were busking one time at the forks and this 
I don't know what this lady was singing. She wanted to give us a tunie from the the second floor and threw it and it put a big crack in my in the fiddle, and it was kind of like it was kind of devastating because it was a really like un- unique piece and it was but we we fixed it up a little bit but I just like playing being able to play it and say you know this has been in our family for for years and I'm just glad it's not it's not uh, retired yet it's still still working hard for me and. It's doing good. Seen a lot of shows. I'm a little jealous you got the fill, but I know our great grandpa also played violin, and our our great auntie has it. But I think it's one of the last things she has that of her dad. So I, you know, I respect that. But that'd be cool one day to to get it, fix it up, and then then we're both playing these like. Our ancestors fiddle, you know, <laughs> that'd be pretty, that'd be pretty wild. <laughs> I moved into Nunavut and Yukon twice, um, all the way to the island on BC, and Ontario, Quebec. We've already done so much before we're 20. It's like just, I don't know, I feel so special and, and blessed to be able to do this. Like a lot of people my age, like, haven't even, I know some people who haven't even left the province, and. For us to be playing all over everywhere, it just feels so, so special, especially with our, our dad and my brother. No one else I'd want to do it with. When I'm on stage with these guys, like, there's no place I'd rather be, absolutely. Um, they've learned so much and have become so good at what they do, I just, it, it amps me up too. I'm like, I, I rock out behind them. I'm, I'm going full throttle right there with them. And um, it's the best feeling I can imagine. But things are changing. Aiden is away studying engineering in Ottawa, and Luke has stayed in Winnipeg for veterinary sciences, so they have less time to play together. And the twins have joined a new band, Lay Barn Boys, without Dad. Well, our new band, well, we had known some some musicians that are our age from other schools. We had seen them around at the festival and just invited us to come hang out at their barn in, in La Brecquerie for a jam. And we're like, I, we never really went to jams like that with kids our age. So we just said, sure, why not? And I just to- I told my dad about it. Hey, like these guys want to start a band. Dad, isn't it pretty cool? And he was just excited, but I think he was a little sad. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, for... Finally, I get to see you guys on stage from the front, <laughs> and that's pretty cool. Um, I like that. I, th- I think we'll always play together, uh, you know, throughout life. Obviously, family and friends will want us to hear us play together. Um, right now, me and my brother are just in school, so it's kind of just more of just a part-time thing because we're really trying to focus on, you know, getting just a and education and then maybe I'd love to just kind of come back to music and maybe try try going a little further see what I can do but I'd rather have like a stable floor to stand on <laughs> before I just <laughs> before I like drop everything and go do that I hope this new band we're in we get to experience some of the things that we have been able to do in the past and dad will come and watch us <laughs> 
the only the only thing I would say though is I think as the years go by, Orange Blossom special with that is gonna get a little slower. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it's an arm killer. It is an arm killer. <laughs> I'm a sucker for a family band, Evie. <laughs> you need to get your kids in some lessons, did you hear? <laughs> the Brinkley Brothers were doing it at three. I know, it's nuts, but if you want to see the twins all growing up playing the same fiddle at the same time, that's one fiddle between the two of them, head on over to our CBC Now and Ever Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And today on Now and Ever, we are joining people, embracing, breaking, or reinventing the imprint of their families. Nicole Ng is just four days away from packing up her life in Toronto for a new job in Vancouver. But before she goes, she has one stop to make. A retirement residence in North York, Toronto, to visit someone special. Her grandpa, Nick Yoshido. Hi, Grandpa. How's Hi. it going? Hi, Nico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we going to sit? In there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know this place as well as uh, yeah, we both Yeah, there's do. like a table. Nick has accepted that his granddaughter, Nicole, is moving away, but that doesn't mean he has to like it. How do you feel about Nicole moving to Vancouver? <laughs> I think she's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said that. Uh, you, are, you have your own life to lead. Don't let let that bother you. I was, I was just joking. Oh, I know. Okay. I know, Grandpa. Don't worry. Yeah, I I understand what he means, just given the experiences he went through when he was living out in BC himself. Um, but yeah. That's, um, that's my grandpa for you. <laughs> He'll be very honest. Nick's feelings about Nicole's move have nothing to do with her and everything to do with his experiences growing up in Vancouver as a Japanese-Canadian. I grew up in, in, in British Columbia, how I was still a boy. And... Uh, we were always poverty stricken. What saved, saved us was both of them were learning how to get income from, uh, from food. And although we didn't spend much money, we still had a, a good, good life when the American Navy was bombed by a Japanese uh, planes in Pearl Harbor. Uh, that's when our the trouble began for for Japanese people. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Canadian government seized and eventually sold off the homes and properties of Japanese Canadians in BC. In total, twenty three thousand Japanese Canadians, around ninety percent of the population at the time most being Canadian citizens, were forcibly relocated and incarcerated in internment camps or exiled to Japan. Nick was a young teenager then. His family had their home taken, his father's fishing boat was seized, and the entire family was sent to an abandoned mining town in the interior of BC, 
where they shared a 200 square foot bug infested room with no running water. We were all kicked out at the same time. They were very efficient in, in <laughs> kicking us out. It was awful, not just for our family, but every family got affected because they had, they had no longer could, could work. We, we became jobless and, and at the same time, we were moved out of our home and there was nothing we could do about it, right? Do you feel connected to BC or does it feel like a, a place that because of your experience <laughs> you you want to be disconnected from? As far as I'm concerned, you could you could throw British Columbia to to uh, to hell. That's where they belong. To hell. That's where that's that's what they are. Yeah. It has been 75 years since the end of the Japanese internment in Canada, and Nick's anger at the injustice is still hot. There has since been an official Government of Canada apology, and redress payments have been made, and the government of British Columbia has also made efforts to commemorate this painful chapter in history. There are monuments and memorial sites, but Nick will never see them, because since he's left BC, he has refused to go back. And when he and his wife were raising their own kids in Toronto, he didn't want them to go either. I'm Winnie Yoshida, and my dad is Nick Yoshida, uh, and Nicole's my, my eldest daughter. I think what leaves a big impression for me is that um, he never took us back to Vancouver. There's a, definitely a lot of hurt and, uh, and, uh, and bad memories there. Um, for, I think for my generation, um, going back to to Vancouver was just not even um, considered. And now for Nicole, I think, you know, going back represents um, the time maybe it took to, to heal some, some of those. But uh, I think she understands why, my, why, her, why her grandfather didn't want to go back. Yeah, Nicole. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Nicole is four days away from moving to Vancouver and her grandfather's experiences are giving her a sense of purpose. I feel like I'm making up for something in some way, um, like I'm carrying on the hard work that my grandpa, um, that my grandpa had showed in like getting where he was in his career. Um, and I think just like remembering like all that he went through, all that um, like my other grandparents went through, um, you just wanna make them proud and you want to make what they went through worth it mm -hmm. um, so that the generations ahead of us will continue to live a better life. Yeah. Nicole's move is significant for another reason too. Her grandpa Nick's late wife, Nicole's grandma May, their family once had a grocery store called the Busy Bee in downtown Vancouver right on Robson Street. So the grocery store was taken away from their family uh, during the internment and now in its place um, is my future workplace. You know, you say it so casually, but it is, it's kind of shocking to me that like you are literally going back to the exact location 
that has such a significant part of your family story, at least as, as I see it. It's one of those things where like sometimes it just takes like an, an outsider's view to realize like like how this is happening is really um, interesting and important. The universe is kind of giving back to our family, it feels. Like we went through a lot two generations ago and now we're in a place where we have the privilege of going back and feeling like like we're okay to go back and that we're wanted. Um, it's, yeah, it definitely feels like a very like important thing. Yeah. Grandpa. Yeah. I hope that I hope that I can go back to Vancouver yeah. and visit the places that you once were. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. What I said belong to my generation. What you are going to encounter is in your generation. You may have totally different things happening. Right? Yeah. So God knows. The wildest thing happened on a flight to Mexico last week. I bumped into my long lost cousin. Hmm. I hadn't seen her in 25 years to the point where I didn't even recognize her when I walked past her. And her husband stopped me and said, hey, that's your cousin up there. And I went over and gave her the biggest hug and we caught up. And it was amazing to sit there and just recount all these old family stories from years ago, from when we got together and hung out over Christmases and holidays and summer times. And I'm just looking forward now to like moving forward and kind of like rebuilding up that that legacy of getting together with her and her brothers and her sisters, really getting to know each other again. Hmm. You saying this show has you feeling in your feelings? It does have me feeling in my feelings. It makes me think about, about the, the family we, we, we have and the family we lose and the family that we choose to have. Hmm. Well, let's give a shout out to our Now or Never family. Sarah Tate, Bridget Forbes, Katie Swales, Michaela Van Kooten, and Rahma Shafi. Also, a special thank you to Moira Donovan as well. I'm Ifi Chiwetu. I'm Trevor Deneen. Take care, everyone. <laughs> We're your mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Come home for dinner. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.